0: The next stop, Sprawlcast.
1: You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor in chief of The Sprawl. Sprawlcast is a show made in collaboration with CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. And we are broadcasting/slash podcasting from Treaty 7 territory. This is the home of the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Pekani, Sixica, and Ghana nations, along with the Sutina Nation and Stony Nakota Nations. This place is also home to Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. One of the best articles I've read in recent weeks is a piece by Emma Jackson in The Breach. Jackson is an Edmonton climate activist and organizer and her article is about what the left can learn from the so-called freedom convoy movement. Maybe you've read this piece, but if you haven't, she talks about how there's a battle playing out right now in Canada between two visions, not just the visions themselves that are different, but the power and organizing behind them. She makes the case for movement building that is messy and imperfect, something she says the right often does a better job of than the left. In her piece, she talks about the importance of stories. As humans, we need stories. We can't make sense of our world without them. And I don't think we can find a place of belonging without them either. But right now, it often feels like we live in a world of endlessly fragmenting stories, and it can be completely disorienting. And when we're drawing from such divergent wells of information and understanding, the idea of having some semblance of a shared story in society can seem like nothing more than naive idealism. Jared Wesley has given more consideration to this than most Albertans. He's a political scientist at the University of Alberta, and he leads something called the Common Ground Project. It's a group of researchers who are digging into the political culture of Western Canada. They look at what binds people in the West together, And where and why they diverge. I spoke with Wesley about political polarization, the rise of white nationalism, and that tricky question of what to do when your family or friends are sympathetic to political views that you find abhorrent. I began our interview by asking him about one of the ideas underlying the Common Ground Project this idea that progressives and conservatives are failing to find common ground in the West. And I asked, "Why is that? And is this new?" I think Western Canada is
0: a is one spot in the world uh, where this is probably most pronounced. But we, we're we're seeing signs of this uh, throughout throughout much of uh, Western democracy now. Um, in fact, a lot of our research is showing that some of the you know symptoms that we see here in Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, were were things that we saw south of the border in the Rust Belt and um and, and in coal country in the united states decades earlier and, and probably more recently in in the industrial heartland in the uk and you know unpacking why we're seeing this type of uh, polarization is it would it would fill an entire shelf in a library but i mean what, what our project is looking at is to what extent uh, are progressives and conservatives actually uh, talking with one another well, to what extent do they engage with one another either on social media or in person and what happens when we actually do bring them together through through focus groups? Do they look at their communities overarching values the same way? And we find that actually there is a lot of consensus as to what, it, what um, you know, Alberta political culture is. What, in other words, what are the underlying values that animate politics? Now, progressives and conservatives can disagree whether those values are good or bad, but they seem to have a, you know, a general sense that Alberta's political culture is um, grounded in in this uh age-old cowboy myth that's kind of uh, animated our politics really dating back to the early 20th century the notions like personal responsibility and you know bootstrap individualism settler colonialism while those terms don't get used in by our, by our by folks in our focus groups when we ask them to tell us what is the average albertan think um that's what they tell us and you know, our, our research is trying to figure out why, if we look at public opinion surveys, when Albertans do agree on a lot of public policy issues, and a lot of Albertans do see themselves as being in the center of the spectrum, why does this you know, this sense of Alberta's political culture as being right-wing persist, and how does it help us understand why progressives in particular feel alienated uh, in this political culture?
1: And is that alienation and division, uh, to what extent is it new? Because I think it's easy you know to kind of look around and think um you know we've never been so divided uh you know social media uh entrenches us in our own echo chambers um but is that has it ever been so or is it actually a new phenomenon this kind of uh alienation and this, this separation I think you know it-
0: part of it has to do with the evolution of alberta society over the last number of decades um i think you know as generations as we've seen generational change and as we've seen um, immigration to the province today's alberta doesn't look like it did even in the 1990s right just looking at demographics um, by within the next 10 years or so about one out of every four albertans is going to be a member of a visible minority community or a BIPOC community right um and that i think we're starting to see the polarization a little bit more, feel it more because Albertans are starting to, to realize this disjunction between who, who they actually are when it comes to their attitudes about, about public policy or where they position themselves on the, on the ideological spectrum and what they see the community values to be, right? And see, and this manifests itself in social media with people saying, uh, you know, uh, when, a, when a government makes an announcement that is, you know, in keeping with that conservative political culture, oh, I hate this place, this is not my Alberta, I'm leaving right? I think a lot of people have noticed that there, that a lot more people are, are, are noticing that their own personal ideology doesn't seem to fit with uh, with that political culture. At the same time, I think they're starting to realize, many of them, uh, that they're not alone in this and that we're, we're reaching, you know, if we're not at the tipping point, we're coming close to it with progressives realizing that they are what many people on social media are calling the silent majority when it comes to things like health restrictions. So public opinion is, is out of sync with with those dominant values. And, and when we see that happen in, in other in other cultures, it, it it's in the past has, has been seen to, to spark some kind of a cultural shift, right? Where people start to see that their own ways of thinking are not in keeping with the general uh consensus or what they think is the general consensus of society. And that's, you know, usually that that disjunction is brought to the fore during major you know, major events like a pandemic. So I think, you know, there's a whole bunch of different forces that are coming together that are revealing, I think, for a lot of Albertans, um, that, that they're not alone in being progressive and that there is an opportunity for them to express themselves in, within this still predominantly conservative political culture.
1: hmm Yeah. And you, you mentioned, you know, people's perceptions of Alberta and how that can be at odds with, um, with the province itself and how it's changing um and and i'm curious you you've done this work around you know kind of digging into who is the average albertan and and you've you do this kind of cool thing where you ask people to actually draw and kind of portray um you can correct me if i'm wrong the language around it but basically who is the average albertan so i'm curious what what has surprised you about that like what you've gleaned from it and if there's been anything surprising there
0: yeah so i mean the 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 tactic is a little bit different from what we see with public opinion we do public opinion research as well through our viewpoint alberta project you can measure the average albertan by just simply taking you know the average of individual opinions and you'll come up with as i said before a pretty centrist person Um, but that's not really measuring who albertans think the average albertan is so what we asked them to do, as you mentioned in inner focus groups, and this is off-putting to a lot of a lot of our participants. <laughs> They're like, what? You're paying me $75 for this hour and a half and you want me to draw something? What's going on? Um, but once they get into it, actually it's it's fascinating to see them open up about politics in a way that um that they wouldn't if you were doing a one-on-one interview or if you didn't take them through this activity of, of personification. So we asked them to draw us an Albertan. We don't say average Albertan, we say just draw us an Albertan. The first thing that pops into your mind, draw that. And then we provide them with some prompts to say, you know, this Albertan could be holding something or wearing something, standing next to something. Um, And then once they're done, we have them uh, come up with a backstory for this Albertan. And they actually got quite creative and and in-depth. And they're drawing from their own, a lot of them drawing from their own personal experience with people that look like the people that they drew. But what we found, um, what I guess what was most startling when we did this was the you know the ubiquity of three different personas that you know the the persistence of three different personas in the minds of Albertans as to who is the quintessential member of their community It was either a roughneck uh, a redneck or a cowboy right so somebody who works on on the rigs a farmer or or some or a rancher Um, and I guess it was probably most eye-opening when we started piloting this on university campuses across the, the province I remember walking into Uh, a classroom in in Grant McEwen and full of students and and two young women sitting on opposite ends of the room drew exactly the same person with exactly the same name. His name was Joe. So I said, well, this is interesting. Uh, Do you two know each other? And they said, well, no, just in class. I asked them both, you know, who did you draw? And they said, "Uh, well, I drew my dad. And they both drew their dad. And I was like, okay, you're not sisters. No, 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 that's my dad. He's wearing plaid. You know, we had a little bit of a laugh. But then you started to see light bulbs go off in the room where these were, you know, two young women who by most, you know, uh, by most measures would be typical, at least in the Edmonton community, who drew something that did not look like them. And there was, you know, very few people in our focus groups that actually draw themselves as Albertans. And that, that's a bit disturbing to me, right? And and that people of colour, women, women. Um, uh, you know, younger people would draw that, you know, stereotypical Joe Albertan 55 or 30 to 50 year old um, man in plaid. Um, and that, that to me, it suggests that there's a real disjunction between who Albertans actually are, and who they think they are. And then in the rest of the activities that are in the focus groups, we ask people to park their own personal opinions about politics and tell us how would Joe view politics? How would Joe react to this particular headline or this policy change? Uh, and through those activities, we really unpack who Albertans think the average member of their community is, and that—that that is essentially what what drives political culture. It's that voice in the back of your head, right, that's telling you what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, what's politically correct to do, say, or think, and what's not. And it's a lens through which we look at at, 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 pol- at political party leaders and other leaders. Do we take them seriously? If they, for example, come out and propose. A provincial sales tax is that seen as being mainstream or extreme? Uh, and if, if, the, if the last uh, few elections with the Liberal Party of Alberta, any in indication they're seen as being extreme. So even even folks that are on the that don't agree with Joe on many things, uh, that don't see eye to eye with him because they're progressive or for any other reason, they still are affected by their their view of Joe. Joe still has an effect on all of us in this in this in this province.
1: That's. That's so, uh, it's so interesting that that archetype, uh, lives on like roughneck Joe farmer, Joe, um, and and I'm curious, like, do you think that in part, um, plays into what we're seeing now in terms of some of the alienation, uh, where, you know, if I don't, if I don't see myself as an Albertan and I have. And, and if this is widespread where, you know, a good section of the population doesn't see themselves as an Albertan and they kind of see, no, it's this other person, this province is for this other person, this province isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like that would kind of, yeah, you're kind of standing outside the story in a sense of the mm-hmm. place. Well,
0: exactly right. Political cultures political culture is the story we tell ourselves, right? And it's a story that's told to us through things like curriculum. And we're actually leading a study now that's an offshoot of our Common Ground project called Becoming Albertan, where we're trying to figure out at what point do kids start to draw Joe. So we've had we've we've had you know students from grade three up to grade twelve drawing us Albertans, and we found that it actually comes that that Alberta cowboy myth starts to really you know set in people's minds somewhere in high school and we're trying to figure out what is it in high school that makes them uh that that makes folks you know turn away from drawing say like Connor mcdavid and and jan arden which we see a lot of drawings of and to start drawing joe um to stop drawing women and people of color and start drawing exclusively men and the, the the results of our pilot research are actually pretty stark there it happened somewhere in high school and, you know, so part of that might be popular culture, but I think a lot of it has to do with the way that politicians have cultivated this, this myth over time, right? So I'll give you one example. And by the way, politicians don't just cultivate it, they're affected by it too. So I'll take you, take you back to the second wave of the pandemic and and um, then Health Minister Tyler Chandra was uh, at a town hall, and he was asked the question, um why don't we have a province-wide mask mandate the science is there other jurisdictions are moving in this direction why don't we do it and his his response was illuminating right he said i know the science is there i know the public opinion is there but tell me how am i supposed to sell a mask mandate to the guy in cold lake how am i supposed to sell it to the guy in cold lake and right there, and in, in that moment you realize wh- who who he thinks the, you know, the typical Albertan is and, and who he seen, who, uh, who anchors his worldview when it comes to politics. That was more subtle. We've seen it, we've seen it far more, you know, overt with you know Ralph Klein conjuring up images of Martha and Henry and, and Jason Kenney doing the same thing with the same personas. Um, drawing on this notion of who who is a severely normal Albertan? Well, it's Martha and Henry. And when you say those names, you have a very distinct image of what it means to be an average Albertan. So politicians are cultivating this over time. And so it becomes politicized, it becomes socialized, and it eventually gets embedded in our our own political institutions. You know, it's no coincidence that um, the UCP is now... um, uh, you know, moving forward with a, a new culture minister looking for on with so a task force looking into Alberta identity, uh, UCP private members moving um, motions to make rodeo Alberta's provincial sport. You know, the stampede becoming a symbol of pandemic uh, era freedom. I mean, the, some of this stuff is subtle, but some of it's really not. Uh, and so it's no wonder I think that this that this myth has persisted over time. It's only when that way, that way of thinking, that way of looking at the world, comes you know runs head on against something that that worldview can't solve, like a global pandemic. That we start to see people question whether those old ways of thinking are actually appropriate.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, a lot of people right now are, are looking around, looking at the news, uh, looking at what's happening in Ottawa, looking at, w- at what's happening at Coots, and. And there's a, there's a certain element of, you know, what the hell is happening here. Um, I don't know. Do you see it as, I guess I would ask, where do you think that comes from? And does that come from that political culture? Like you mentioned, you know, across, the, across Western democracies, we are seeing more polarization across the board that isn't specific to this region, but... In this region, we have seen, you know, uh, Wexit, the Yellow Vest Movement, now the Freedom Convoy uh, movement, you have seen these things kind of take form and take root to a point here uh, and emerge. So is it, is it our political culture that fosters these things or or is it just kind of what's happening generally in the world?
0: It's a, a really good question you can tackle it in a number of different angles i'm going to take take one particular approach so uh, i'll take you back to your mental image of Joe the Albertan wearing plaid working in the fields or or elsewhere. Um, Joe as a symbol of Alberta. Uh, it has if we asked our participants how's Joe doing Joe Joe feels anxious right now right. Joe's way of life, according to our, this are the words of our participants. Joe's way of life, his way of living, his livelihood, uh, is in jeopardy. Whether he's working on the rigs, working in the fields, forces beyond his control, right? The environmental movement, for example, or shifts in the in natural resource economies and so on, are really impacting Joe. And Joe feels anxious. And Joe feels like his status in his community, in his own family, in some instances. Uh, in Canada, Joe feels like his status is being threatened. And, you know, to this point, a lot of researchers have focused on individuals who feel that way, who then become, you know, uh, radicalized into some of these white nationalist movements and insurrection movements that we see now on both sides of the border. But our research is looking at how, when a community identifies with that as being their primary persona, what impact does that have on the community's sense of self? And while I wouldn't use the term, you know, group identity crisis, I think we're, we're getting to that point, right, where, you know, Alberta can't just see itself as being an, an oil and gas uh, p- producing province. There's something that's going to have to happen in transition, and that that, can, that transition can be jarring, not just for individuals, but but for the whole community. So there's that feeling of of individual status loss, but also a collective status loss that that really I think is is driving a lot of the sympathy for for the convoy movement as well. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's that's a big that's a big piece of the puzzle.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's almost like you know Joe is looking for meaning. Uh, Joe, you know he. he mm-hmm he had uh, a world that was secure and now that's coming apart. Like, I think when I look around at what's happening, I think it often occurs to me that people are trying to make sense of something that perhaps doesn't make sense, uh, of something that's confusing and disorienting the pandemic, uh, kind of everything being thrown into this topsy-turvy world for the last couple of years. And and people are gonna try and make sense of that in one way, one way or another. And I, I I don't know. Like in the past, and you can tell me I might be romanticizing this, but were we more likely to shape a shared story together uh, in a situation like this? Whereas now you have very divergent stories where. Where people, you know, I'll use the media as an example. Um, where you know you have one one side of the population on the left who tends to trust the media, trust experts, uh, and, and and then then on the right, and especially the far right, you have you know not only is the media not trustworthy, but they're actively distorting. They're actively uh, trying to mislead. So you just have these totally different different stories playing out. So I'm curious, is that, is that, mm. is that new or, or, or is that something that's always been the case when we're faced with crises like this?
0: I wouldn't say it's new, but, but it's definitely been a, a slow moving process. Over time, so what we're seeing across the world right now is is a populist surge that's being driven by a combination of two things. Kasmuda has, has, has talked about modern populism consisting of two elements. There's the anti-elite element that's always been part of populism, right? This idea that um, politicians, academics, you know, members of the mainstream media as elites can't be trusted, and that kind of sentiment has been Uh, you know, cultivated by neoliberals dating back decades now, right? Um, In talking with people about shrinking the size of government, they can't be trusted, teachers can't be trusted, you know, we still see that rhetoric today. The other element of populism that that Muna talks about is is, uh, anti-pluralist, right? So there's this pushback against uh, tolerance within society that respects different worldviews and different uh people that look and think and act differently as being legitimate members of our of our of our political um community of our political discourse so there's a homogenizing uh aspect of it that says if you don't get on board with the values that that i'm i'm proposing are are at the heart of our community democracy rights however they might couch it then then you're an outsider and you and you deserve to be in some cases demonized right and 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 delegitimized Uh, in the political sphere so I think there's that going on there's the rise of this modern populism but over the last several decades I mean there's a book that was written in the late 1990s called the decline of deference that looked at the changes in Canadians attitudes towards institutions like political parties and politicians academics and so on and over time I think um, Canadians have been uh, have become less deferential to elites So whereas we may have turned to establishment figures to help solve a major crisis, like say a global pandemic or an economic downturn, people are now more likely to feel what we call cognitive mobilization. They feel like they can handle it themselves, right? They feel like they don't need somebody else to tell them that because they've got Google or they've got a... A high school diploma, or in some cases, they've got a university degree, and they feel like they they can answer this on their own. So you combine that with the individualism that's that's been cultivated by neoliberals and the new populism, and you get a society that's more likely to go its own way rather than rather than uh, pull together. In other words, social fabric is not so much a way to to, to describe um, uh, society, but rather uh, now I think the threads are are. Are separating and fraying in, in some areas, and the big question is: Should we uh, and and can we put that social fabric back together?
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it makes me think of. Uh, I kind of get a kick out of. The Globe and Mail uh, ran a piece by Mark Carney, um, you know, basically arguing, you know, crackdown on the protesters. Canada is a nation of peace, order, and good government. Um, and, and you have voices like that, that are these very establishment voices, um, basically saying, let's go back to normal. Uh, but it's striking that both on the right and the left, that doesn't, that doesn't have resonance. I don't know if you saw, uh, the piece by Emma Jackson in The Breach, but she wrote a piece about, um what the left can learn from the freedom convoy movement. Uh, And, and she's a climate activist uh, from Edmonton and she describes being at this. uh, I think she was counter protesting a yellow vest protest of some sort. And, and she kind of had this moment of, of epiphany standing across from somebody who was her ideological opposite in some ways, but they, this guy was screaming about how he hates trudeau and she said i hate trudeau too uh but they had different reasons for it they shared this kind of uh sense of dissatisfaction and this sense of you know the system is rigged against us the system is rigged against working people like you and me but they had totally different different ways of of understanding it and i thought that was that was so interesting that was just a bit of kind of this weird patch of common ground um in in this in in two people who on the surface are very different but i but i think yeah i think establishment figures to your point maybe don't don't recognize that or are blind to it a bit
0: well i'm not sure that that they can that they're the right messengers for this right so i mean to, to your broader point i mean the the enemy the enemy my enemy is my friend <laughs> right? <laughs> it seems to be tying the, those, those two people together, but that's a very thin bond. Um, and as I've written about, um, it, it's very tribalistic in a way. And uh, when I say tribalistic, what I mean is uh, Michael Knottie wrote a piece about now 10 years ago on the eve of um, the Tea Party movement in the United States when he was at Harvard. And he wrote, um, you know, politics starts to, to devolve when we start treating our Uh, opponents as enemies instead of adversaries and by that he means enemies are are people that should be vanquished that they don't have any legitimate place in in our politics you know f trudeau i hate trudeau that type of absolutist language um doesn't foster respect in in public discourse now before i start to get even more phone calls (laughs) to my voicemail saying i'm not going to go and hug a nazi i'm not talking about the folks that are spreading hate there there is a limit to tolerance that i'll talk about in a moment but but in mainstream canadian society there's more common ground there than simply "I, i hate this we both hate this person and I think we need to move away from looking at you know our opponents as somebody that needs to be vanquished and wiped off the political map um, to, you know, they need to be defeated in legitimate elections. Because I'm going to go back to another term that you raised, and I'm, I'm not blaming you particularly here, but it may have been in the piece in the breach that you mentioned, that the system seems to be, quote, rigged against people like me that type of language leads to another problem that we're seeing uh, on full display with this convoy movement which is uh, a lack of losers consent right when you know for for years uh, you know the political class in canada and the mainstream political class would lose an election even if they won the popular vote and lost in the election in terms of the number of seats we didn't see a huge outcry Right? The, the system was respected. I, I respect the, the outcome of this election as being legitimate. And until about a year ago, I would say Canada we saw no signs of that whatsoever, but we're seeing it on the right now, right We're seeing it in constituency races with the UCP. We saw it when in the race for the PC leadership and the premiership of Manitoba where one of the losers took the winner to, took the winner to court over it. We're seeing it in right-wing media now with Elections Canada saying, you know, over 200,000 mail-in ballots uh, weren't counted because they weren't returned in time. Oh, now the system's rigged. We need to count all of those votes. This is very, very dangerous, very dangerous territory. It's probably what worries me most in the short term out of this convoy movement is there's folks that just simply do not um, uh, accept legitimately, uh, as legitimate uh, democratically elected governments. And that, as we've seen on full display in in the Capitol riots, is a very dangerous, dangerous place to be.
1: Mm -hmm. Isn't it in some way, though, inevitable as, you know, more people are alienated from even even going back to your point about Joe Albertan, like where where people don't see themselves in the story. um, Yeah, I just wonder, does that loser's consent Degrade inevitably.
0: I think it's it, it, there's um, there's gradations of it, right? So when when uh, Jason Kenney was was first uh, appointed premier, you remember there was a bunch of uh, teachers, in particular, on social media that started a hashtag, "Not My Premier," right? So some of it seems to be innocuous. I think in the in their heart of hearts, in their mind, intellectually, they recognize that he is legitimate premier of the province. But saying he's not my premier is a way of kind of disassociating yourself with, with with politics or with with that leadership. Rather than, as, as Barack Obama tried to do, and maybe he wasn't the best messenger for this either, but he, he said, you know, don't get mad, vote. Right. And as hard as it is for I think in in our in our modern society of instant you know, of, of instant gratification, it's hard to wait four years. But if there's anything that this pandemic has taught us, I think it's that elections have consequences. And if you really want to engage with the system, if you, if you you may very well think that you that there are reforms that need to be made, electoral reform, for example. Well, then get in the game, right? Uh, you know, join. As many people are saying now, join a political party. They're they're the gatekeepers of uh, democracy for right now. Join a political party, move move policy change. Um, and engage in elections. That's that's the way our, our representative democracy works. If we don't use it, we're at risk of losing it. And that's what we see. Um, uh, that's what I see at the head of this convoy movement.
1: Hmm. Another point in this piece, I know I'm drawing a bit from this uh, piece that was in the breach, but I want to bring up one more point that was mentioned because I think it's a really good one. Um, Jackson made the point that uh, you know the freedom convoy movement Has built a mass on ramp for people with highly divergent views. And she makes the point that the left, by contrast, is a lot more insular, kind of more of a club where, you know, people are expected to agree on a wide range of views. Whereas the Freedom Convoy movement, I mean, you can just, you can be a little bit skeptical about, you know, the the direction government has taken, and there's no, There's not a heck of a lot of gatekeeping, as we've seen with, you know, the more racist uh, white supremacist elements uh, involved in that. Um, And and I'm curious, is, is that part of the appeal of a movement like this is that you, you know, you can. The doors are wide open in a sense, whereas it might be more narrow elsewhere in society.
0: Well, one strain of research suggests that a lot of protest movements are, are held together and they grow because people feel a sense of solidarity. So if you're looking at the common strands that hold all of these disparate ideas uh, together, it's not just vaccine mandates, of course, um, goes beyond that. It's people that, as I said before, feel left behind, but people that just hate um, Justin Trudeau, the federal government, Laurentian elites. Um, so much that they're willing to drive across canada and block international international roadways right um i again i i that that type of solidarity um you know feels good for a time and and certainly that's that's where we get that the party atmosphere that we hear you know erupting at these encampments is because for for the first time people feel like they belong somewhere right and they feel like they're 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 in a position of power again i think that's that's very alluring But to to the metaphor that you mentioned from the Breach article, there's a lot of on-ramps to this movement. Uh, Sure, I think in the weeks ahead, we need to start thinking about the off-ramps because um, while some people have jumped off the convoy uh, when they started to see symbols of hate and so on, a lot of folks are now dug in and entrenched and they're tired as you see uh, on, on social media being talked down to by intellectual elites, by politicians, by the Prime Minister, who's writing them off, as Hillary Clinton did, by the way, when she wrote off people as baskets of deplorables, I think was her comment. Those types of comments don't aren't helping. We need to start looking for off-ramps for these folks who have genuine grievances, as I've outlined today, um, but we need to bring them back into the political mainstream. So the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race is one opportunity for that. And I'm, I'm actually heartened to hear that there are some um, what I call old, older establishment conservatives, uh, that are willing to, to, to stick their neck out and say, you know what, we are the party of law and order. Um, we are the part, we should be the party of, of blue collar workers. And we need to start developing real plans with them rather than simply spewing rhetoric, uh, their way and hoping that, that they vote for us.
1: Yeah. I, I want to dig a bit more into the, into the grievances you mentioned, uh, and, and how we should understand them. Um, I, I find some of the research you've done is really interesting around uh, vaccine hesitancy and the way it's played out very predictably along political lines. You know, conservatives, those on the right, tend to be more skeptical of vaccines, whereas those on the left tend to embrace them more readily. But also, uh, it plays out along lines of economic hardship uh, and that's, that's something that I think doesn't necessarily get as much attention, but is that kind of one of the grievances you're referring to here?
0: I think, you know, the overall grievance is just, we don't feel heard. I remember there was an interview on CBC the other night where there was a, it was a, a rare quiet moment moment on the streets of Ottawa. And they found this older gentleman with a very long scraggly beard. And uh, the, the interviewer was asking him, you know, why are you here? And he said, I just, I'm tired of not being heard and these people hear me. So that, you know, they may all have individual grievances about vaccine mandates or whatever it is, but it's the ultimate, ultimately, it's the act of feeling heard and belonging that these people are aggrieved are about. Um, to your point about vaccine hesitancy, I think um, we didn't approach the vaccine rollout in, in a very inclusive way, I think our research shows that there's a big difference between being anti-vax and being vaccine hesitant and i know a lot of people are moving now towards saying well if you're still hesitant at this point you must be anti-vaccine i think people still have legitimate questions about um about vaccines that are are not being answered rather they're being dismissed or oh, you have questions at this point what's wrong with you and that that's a conversation ender right that's not a conversation starter and it really only gets people's backs up well, you're going to talk down to me because I don't know all your fancy scientific words. Okay, microchips make sense to me then. <laughs> I mean, I'm being a bit, I'm being a bit facetious, but that's it's that that treat, the way we treat each other, and again, like go back to tribalism, looking at somebody who doesn't take a vaccine as being your enemy, right, is uh, is not helping the situation. And I'm not sure how we get back to a place where we can talk to one, each other again in a rational way. And a lot of people have given up hope and saying we live on different planets when it comes to different sets of facts and so on. But research shows that if you have the right person at the right time delivering the right information, we can change people's minds through, through rational, through rational um, discussion. I think part of the problem right now in the pandemic is we're not face to face anymore right? A lot of our conversations are happening over texts or over email, or worse yet on social media with anonymized accounts. And we're not meeting people in common places anymore. And that physical distancing is having, is having a detrimental effect as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, one thing that I've noticed you've probably observed this too, um, as people are trying to process what's happening in Ottawa, uh, and along the border, um, is, you know, people on the center left taking a, what I think what is understood to be a moral stand. So there's Confederate flags flying. There's these white supremacist elements and, and, and there's this sense of, you know, I'm going to speak out against that, but not only am I going to speak out against that, but if you express uh if any of my friends express solidarity with this convoy in any way like you're out i'm cutting you out and like people will just openly say that um and i'm curious kind of your view on that because (laughs) to your point like people want to feel heard and and i have a friend who reached out to me who is very confused on all of this stuff and and sees the appeal of of uh, the freedom convoy movement, but it, but is really searching and and if I was just to cut him out and say, you know, you're gone, that would not uh, it would just further entrench him, I think. But I, I I'm just curious how you see if you would have any advice or any thoughts on how people should navigate that as they try and balance these different moral questions.
0: Well, I start from a point of zero tolerance, no quarter for hate, right? So if, if your friend is, is openly advocating white nationalist views or posting symbols like the Nazi flag or the Confederate flag, I'm not talking about those people. Those people should be shunned, right? I, I, I think that they're, <laughs> I think, but at the same time, I think people need to understand that while white nationalists are at the head of this convoy, and I think, by the way, our premier should probably start acknowledging that, instead of saying, all oh, this peaceful, well-intentioned protest got hijacked by white nationalists. That's not the case. White nationalists have been at the head of this thing from the very beginning, and they're raising millions of dollars. That should be worrisome. And everybody with access to a social media feed, in my mind, should be standing up to that and condemning it outright, that these insurrectionists and extremists at the heart of this movement um, have no place in Canadian politics, period. And that can be a little bit off-putting for folks that are used to a tolerant society and saying, well, we need, to, we need to respect all views. No, it's Karl Popper and before him, Carl Schmidt has written repeatedly. That's the paradox of tolerance. If you become too tolerant, then the intolerant will take over. So there has to be a line in the sand when it comes to hate. But outside of that core of the, of the convoy, there are folks who are attracted to it, as as we've said, for for a variety of different reasons. Now we can we can call them enablers of white supremacy by supporting it. We can call them privileged for not recognizing their own privilege in uh, in society, and and we can dismiss their perceptions of status loss, as we've talked about, as being not in not matching with reality. Sure, you can do that. That might feel good for the next five or 10 minutes. It might give you a bit of, of important mental health relief from having to deal with your, your, your crazy uncle, cousin, or, or sister, or whoever on, on social media. But I would ask you, at what point are you going to re-engage? Because I hear a lot of people saying, no, that's it. Um, I'm, I'm not ever going to have a Christmas dinner with these folks again. I just cannot. If they support the convoy, that means that they're a, a white nationals. Um, I... <sighs> I don't see that how, how that helps us bridge the divides that we see in our communities in the long term. At some point, I think we're all gonna have to go back to public spaces after the pandemic is over. We're gonna have to interact with folks. Part of me wonders whether we'll just push all of it down and, and not talk about politics as much as we have been during the pandemic. I think um, you know, if we had long, longitudinal data that looked at how engaged were Albertans over the course of the pandemic versus pre-pandemic, I think a lot of people are engaged in politics because Really, there's not much else to do, one. And and secondly, politics is all around us. For the first time in a long time, the state is making decisions that impact our lives and livelihoods in a real way. I I wonder whether when the temperature gets taken down after the pandemic has, has wound down, whether we can get back to a more congenial society. But I would say avoid, my last piece of advice for folks, avoid absolutist language. That is the hallmark of of tribalism, of viewing your opponents as enemies instead of adversaries. And I have to catch myself all the time on this, right? Avoid saying all conservatives are X, all progressives are X, or they'll always do this. That absolutist language, I think, locks us into a very staid view of people and and their ability to evolve, but also of society.
1: Yeah. What I hear you saying is kind of, uh, it's kind of a call for for more precision, so so condemn condemn the hate, condemn the white nationalist uh, organization and organizers behind this uh, but but don't cast that net so wide that you're kind of uh, expelling everyone with even the most tangential interest in this, right?
0: Right, because again, I think a lot of people are drawn to this movement because they feel like for once their their voices are being heard. And if you're not going to listen to the, to the grievances under us, so start asking some questions. Don't, by the way, don't do it on social media. It's the worst place to do it. Like pick up the actual phone or you know, go over in a safe way and, and talk with people face-to-face. We know that that helps to build trust bonds in a way. And just, just start asking, like, where are you coming at this from? Because I don't understand it. I mean, there's an old line that says, seek first to understand. Um, now, maybe I'm biased as a social scientist who actually surprisingly talks to people about politics (laughs) but but i think that that's a good place to start again i'm not talking about the hate mongers don't seek to understand a nazi i'm not asking you to do that but i am asking you to try to figure out what is driving people to 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 the point where they're where they're supporting um a protest movement like this
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and to your point about being in person and uh i mean You mentioned at the start of this interview with the Common Ground Project, when you get people in a room, um, you do find a little more consensus around uh, around issues between conservatives and progressives than you might expect. Um, So it might be that there is more like once you start asking those questions. um, There might be more consensus consensus there than appears on the surface, right? There's more empathy. I think I, mean,
0: I think that's it. There, there's more empathy when you get people face to face. So I'll, g- I'll give you one example. We asked um, uh, our focus groups, uh, how would that average Joe Alberton that you've drawn, how would Joe say that this person got to be where they are? And when I say this person, we put up different pictures. We put up a picture of a CEO of General Motors, uh, successful businesswoman. We asked, how would Joe say those people got there? And it was usually hard work or stuff like that that fits in with the prosperity doctrine. But what I found was fascinating is we put up a, a person who was who was living rough, right? This is a person of color, um, living rough on the street. And we asked, how would Joe say that person got there? And we assumed if 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 uh, you know Alberta political culture was. Uh, was as conservative as we thought it was, that it would be, oh, it's personal responsibility. This was all choice. He made some bad decisions, his own fault, and so on. It was fascinating that, you know, in focus groups from Fort McMurray to Hannah, people said, Joe knows a person like this. Joe's worked with folks on the rigs that have, that have fallen into, into substance use and substance abuse. So he knows this isn't a matter of personal choice. He knows that you, you get hooked, and that's not your fault, and you need support. So it was only by you know, getting folks together to talk about what they think is you know their overall society's approach to things, we start to realize that progressives and conservatives aren't really all that far apart when, they're, when they look at what is acceptable and non acceptable in their community. So in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be going back into the field and we're going to be asking, how would Joe react to these protests? Right? Would Joe be in the convoy? And and the, the the closest we came was we asked would, would Joe put a bumper sticker of of Trump on, on his pickup truck? When we were out in the field in November 2019, just before the pandemic, we asked him all about Trump. How does he feel about Trump? And most Albertans that we that we, that we worked with said Joe is not a, a Trump fan. Joe sees him as a huckster, uh, and and doesn't he's not really in it for them. He's in it, he's in it for himself. And so I'm, I'm wondering what people think the average Albertan thinks about the convoy movement, because I don't think it's as, as, as straightforward as saying, "Oh, well, you know, political culture is, is such that we, we, we've, we've bred this and we, and we accept it. I don't think that that's, that's where the average Albertan is.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Jared, is there, is there anything that you would add to any of this that I, that I haven't asked?
0: No, I think, you know, we, we've covered, we covered a lot of ground, but I think, it's important to get back to basics and trying to understand where other people in our communities are coming from, not stereotyping them, you know, not um, dismissing their claims because their, their reality doesn't conform to to your reality. Certainly there's a basis of facts we need to strive towards building, but trying to understand where other people are coming from is an important next step that all of us can take to get ourselves out of this moment. Um, And lastly, I would just say, I, I, as an extension of that i don't think the people that got us into this mess are the ones that are going to get us out of it so for those folks that are waiting around for um, today's politicians or today's convoy leaders to to magically come up with a solution you're gonna be waiting for a while um so and we start to think about as we've talked about today start thinking about ways that we as individuals can contribute to the type of society we want to see emerging from this
1: well, thanks very much, uh, Jared, for your time and insights today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. End of line. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. You've been listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. And this has been my conversation with Jared Wesley, a University of Alberta political scientist who leads the Common Ground Project. You can find out more about the Common Ground Project on their website, commongroundpolitics.ca. You can also find an edited transcript of this conversation on our website, We make that available because, well, some people would rather read than listen. But maybe you, who have listened, want to go back to something you heard, and you can find the transcript at sprawlcalgary.com. Make sure you're signed up for the Sprawl's weekend newsletter, if you're not already. We send it out every Saturday morning, and that's the best way to get the latest from the Sprawl, including stories, Sprawl casts, and comics, depending on the week. Our theme music is by Dan D. Augustino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening and see you next time.